Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to do a shout out for the people who are helping to support this podcast financially each month for $10 or more. And also thank you to everyone who has spread the word about the podcast as the people listening to the show have been listening in increasing numbers and I'm getting some really wonderful feedback from all over the globe, which feels really terrific. So thank you to Peter and Cynthia, John Johnson, Maureen, Sylvia, Brianna, Stacy Ann, Camus, Scott, Jake, Alexandra, Anastasia, Ann and Richard, Christina, Corey, James, Lillian, Linda and Miss Nanya. I really appreciate all of you. And to all of you out there, again, thanks for keeping this podcast growing. Nitai Joseph was raised on the fringes of the Hare Krishna movement and spent his early adulthood as a monk and leader within an offshoot sect. After leaving the community, he became active in studying and raising awareness about group influence and abuse. He is currently completing a master's degree from the University of Salford, studying the psychology of coercive control across contexts. Additionally, Nitai works with nonprofits dedicated to preventing and facilitating recovery from experiences of coercive subjugation. Here's Nitai now. Well, hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to indoctrination, so to speak. And I, uh, I am uh, so happy to be able to talk to Nitai today. Nitai and I have known each other uh, for some time now, and we've hung out at a conference or two, yeah, which has been really nice. Uh, so can you tell the listeners and some of the viewers who are going to see parts of this on YouTube a little bit about your background, a little bit about you? Yeah, uh, it's nice to be here. We tried to record a podcast early on in your series, and I think my audio failed, and it took us this long to get back, but I'm happy. Uh, I am 30 years old. I live in New York City. And I was born and raised uh, loosely in Hare Krishnas. Um, and then at 18, I joined an offshoot sect and was very heavily involved in that and, and in a semi-central role. And then eventually uh, came to view that as very unhealthy and damaging. And I left and started speaking out and going to events uh, where I met you then uh, most recently I'm studying a master's degree in psychology of course of control and turning some of these experiences into a career that hopefully helps people sounds really good and so you you mentioned that at 18 you got involved in this offshoot at what age did you leave um I, the the sect I personally was a monk I moved in lived in one of the properties and joined the monastery. So I moved out of the monastery at 24 and I left the religion in its entirety when I was 25 and I'm 30 now. Okay. Okay. So I know there's a lot for us to cover. I just think when, when people say monk, you know, some things, uh, some visuals come to mind. So can you describe what that looks like and what your day is like as a monk? Yeah, I mean, we would use monk because that was a more contemporary Western term than the Sanskrit that would typically be used of brahmachari, which is like a celibate student. Uh, but for for us, mainly I was based in, in the woods of Northern California on solar power. Um, we rose before dawn, did rituals in the morning, and then full, extremely full days of, of work, be that connected to publishing or labor for growing our food and milking cows, building buildings and living this off-grid lifestyle. But, you know, 12 to 16 hour days of work, plus the literature, plus plus the rituals and, and religious services. And so that would, in, in some ways, be a typical day. But the felt experience is, is just like crisis management. There's never enough people, there's never enough money. And then as his assistant at, at for a large part of my involvement, uh, I would travel with the leader when he would go speak and stuff like that. Um, so that's a real broad kind of view of a day, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And who was the leader of this offshoot group? Uh, Swami Tripurari is his name. And uh, the sect is called Sri Chaitanya Sangha, but its legal entity is called Audarya, which was the name of our monastery as well. And uh, he was a prominent Hare Krishna in the main organization that most people are exposed to and various politics and different things. Uh, in the 80s, a number of people broke off and started their own organizations, and he, he was among them. Uh, okay, yeah, I was going to ask, how come you got involved in an offshoot? It was because of that, that you respected him and you wanted to follow him? Yeah, well, it was that uh, his preaching was a bit of an upgrade. Sometimes I call it like Hare Krishna 2.0. Mm-hmm. I mean, tea, different strokes for different folks. So some... Right. Some people speak this way and it attracts people. Some people speak that way. He was more liberal. He was more intellectual than the standard fare on the scene. And I think that that's why I was I, I was drawn to him. Um, he, he gave more heady kind of lectures and he seemingly facilitated my learning. Part of the way he lured me in to, to move to the monastery when I was 18 was saying he wanted to send me to Berkeley to, to learn Bengali translate scriptures and things like that and none of that ever happened okay okay so thank you for some of that because it i think people want to be able to picture other people's experiences and also understand what the motivation was uh and so can you also say a little bit before we get into a lot of the subjects we want to cover today a little bit about what made you leave at 25 and 26 yeah, I think um, it's it's there's like defined things that kind of come in sequence or, or, or build up over time, and each one has its own significance, but there's also kind of a collective effect. So I was pretty to so much suffering being, it was a relatively small offshoot group, and I was a relatively uh, central person in, in, its, in its functioning for some of those years. And I knew most people and I knew how we operated behind the scenes and I knew our finances. And it was just uh, a lot of, of wrongness and, <laughs> and immorality. And so that weighed on me progressively through the years. And then I, I was lonely being a monk. And at a certain point, I was I was being exploited through my, my labor, uh, very overtly on the road, living in hotels, working long days, selling products at state fairs. Uh, what I now understand was was a human trafficking situation, but I also, with that space and distance after several years being in the monastery, I was like secretly dating and, and, and even had like a dating profile. So really I had this double life and, and that was torturous uh, because the hypocrisy was not what I was looking for. <laughs> but that was a big part of me leaving the monastery was the recognition like, oh, I, I want to be human and be able to form intimate relationships with people. And then a year later was the realization that all the unhealthy components of this were by design, by the leader. He didn't want a healthy organization like I thought we all did. Got it. Right. And you mentioned human trafficking. I hope we come back to that uh, unless you want to talk about that now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I can touch on it. So that's, that is something I kind of wanted to touch on because over the last year I've been on this course, uh, about coercive control. It's very unique in the, in the UK. And one, one guest lecture we had was on human trafficking and I was sitting in the back getting an updated understanding of what constitutes human trafficking and modern slavery and having my mind blown that this was so much a part of my own experience and even more so my parents' generation and kids who were raised strictly in the Hare Krishnas who were used for free labor and so on. So just coming to understand uh, the multitude of circumstances and methods that that constitute human trafficking, like forced marriage or uh, domestic servitude, really caused me to start seeing my whole experience in a new light. And, and, And it's kind of overwhelming because another kind of stigmatized potential label. Uh, cult was really helpful and clarifying to me when I, when I made that connection. But I was like, I don't know that I want to think of myself in this way. But I mean, 
if the shoe fits at the same time. Right. And 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 then uh, the recent Nexium trial, which I got to observe a little bit of, I, I saw crimes being listed and racketeering charges that that I experienced or was was part of, like little deceptions here and there that, that constitute illegalities, and so that kind of concrete framework of, of criminality has been an interesting new like uh, rubric to go back and look at my experience and be like, oh wait, like <laughs> all this all this time you're explaining people cults and it works like this and it's like this and it's like this, but you could also be like, oh look, it was a crime, A, B, C, D. Mm. Um, and there's something really powerful in that. And for people who listen, who have backgrounds analogous to mine, um, if you're inclined, it's not light fare, but but I I found it very powerful. Just look at the 35 racketeering crimes and realize like oh 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 illegal construction is one. Like almost all our buildings on the property were illegal, and that seems innocuous until I realize oh no, if I was living a life of labor exploitation and these were my illegal living quarters, like that that is relevant. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a powerful kind of angle, and it's accurate, and I think it's it's also helpful for this kind of field as a whole to to uh, accept the reality of of those kind of labels and concepts when they where they occur. Well, yeah, I think being able to put some words to it, as I talk about a lot on this podcast, being able to describe it as such, uh, that it is trafficking or it's racketeering and it's illegal, those would all be um, shocking to hear while you're in the group. Or irrelevant, because who cares about worldly laws? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly, right. So if the, if the rules don't apply to you, the laws don't apply to you, you're... Was it seen that, you know, the, the leader or the group was sort of above it or you, that you just sidestepped it all? Uh, I, it, it, yeah, I think it's fundamentally, it's, the ends justifies the means, you know, which, which crops up in so many ways. And, and when, when I've started looking at the criminality aspect, it, it, it really starts to look more like, like a small gang, like a small organized crime endeavor in the sense that it's, it's just opportunistic. There's not a guiding principle except where potential arises for us to press on something and someone will do so. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So uh, also knowing that that means, for example, if it was uh, illegal construction, it may or may not have been done the quote unquote right way um, and may not have withstood a an earthquake or a good jolt? Or, or I mean, the, I was doing electrical work. I have no training in electrical work. Like, the, it, there's so, there's, it's a good point I hadn't even thought of. But yeah, there's so many, like, those regulations exist for an actual reason. And when you live that outside the norm of society, you realize, oh, that's why things get weird. <laughs> <laughs> things get, yeah, things get weird. Uh, and there are no safeguards. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Even though I think in a lot of fields, there are probably more guidelines and more rules than people feel that they need to follow sometimes. But still, you're right that a lot of them are there for a reason and also from past experience. And that's how a lot of them get added to the list of things that you now need to do differently because of what's happened in the past. Okay. Okay. So I know you mentioned also that you're studying. So tell us a little bit about your studies. Like I said, I was partly lured into the group with the promise of studies, and that was used to uh, exploit my college fund and take a large, significant sum of money from me slowly over time. But fortunately, since I've been out, I uh, got into Columbia University initially, and I, and I was attending there doing an undergrad in psychology. And for various reasons, it wasn't a great fit for me, primarily the, the price combined with my past experience made it made it an issue of like powerful institution exploits 
people uh, for to maintain a certain amount of prestige, and and that was very like palpable to me. Just how much I guess how much power is consolidated here, and and so that kind of I struggled with that, and and having to study things that weren't relevant to my goals. Uh, so I ended up withdrawing and and going into this program that's hyper hyper focused on what I'm passionate about. In influence and its misuse, so to speak, and uh, it's psychology of coercive control. Uh, using that terminology, because in the UK there's a law now that criminalized coercive control, defined along certain kind of conservative lines. At this point, not extended to group psychological abuse or anything, but uh, the course I, I'm very happy with with my choice uh, as, I, as I enter the last quarter of that course. It's been very widening of my perspective. And like I already understood the, some of the connections, but to really take time delving into that thing which unifies all these different settings of, of like people's autonomy being co-opted and it looking like people are choosing to stay sort of things. Mm. Yeah, I'm really valuable for that sort of like interdisciplinary across lines perspective. I, I think a good foundation to move forward. Yeah. And and so you said people's autonomy being co-opted. It's a very interesting phrase. I like it. I wrote it down. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about that, how that played out for you and what you're learning about it? Yeah, I, I, I like that phrase too. It, I use that one. I also say that coercion is like the facade of autonomy. It's, mm. it's, it's so perplexing, so hard to legislate, it's so hard to, to try and court, and, and so hard just for people to understand why people stay kind of thing. Uh, so for me, it was... I mean, I was a, a true believer, and sometimes I, I tried to express for me what the experience was like, was like my truest subjective experience of my life was uh, kind of dictated to me how, how I would feel about X, Y, and Z circumstances was dictated to me. But the, the, the crazy part is like, I, I felt it like it became my own to where like my, the, the, the deepest, most authentic emotions that I had contact with were those which the group wanted me to have in any given setting. And I, so I think it's that, it's like this um, varying degree of how fully the group's ideals and definitions, the, the, the way it, classifies the world have have like overtaken your own um and i i think i've had a pretty heavy case shall mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah okay okay and so then i'm curious also then just about being in this program and learning what you're learning um does it feel at times like your brain is shifting to your past experiences um, and then you have to kind of refocus on what you're being taught because there it is so tied in with your experience um, that your mind goes back and forth? I would say yes and no in that I, I think a lot of my kind of coping mechanisms or, or stress management involves intellectualizing. And so it's kind of a good fit in that I can engage with this content a lot and, and it not frequently like overwhelm me in a, in a moment to moment kind of way. But yeah, being immersed in, in it for months uh, certainly has an effect. And, and, and sometimes I think that's why I wasn't doing much else, especially while I was attending a lot of classes, whereas now I'm getting ready to do research and a dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it just like I said with the human trafficking thing, I mean, and I was sitting in that class like, oh my gosh, and even though my, my teachers are wonderful and know the field, like it's hard to convey then after class and walk up and be like, wait, I just like, this is significant. And, and I did have occasions like that. And the fact that my teachers could be supportive through that it was pretty special too to, to have people who understand 
my background. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And I think also before you continue, because I know there are other things that we want to be able to touch on today, um, that there is something really illuminating about finding out what is happening behind the scenes and what the reality of a situation is. Because I think if someone were to have shown up on the property where you were, it would have seemed pretty kind of calm and innocuous, bucolic lovely um and no one would have known what was happening i mean it's so much like uh domestic violence or intimate partner violence situation where depending on the on the situation there can be a whole world behind the scenes you know that only only the trained eye or or the <laughs> the, the eye who's lived something like it might even pick up on the subtleties of that so like someone like you could visit our property and be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is unhealthy. <laughs> but I agree with a lot of people with fairly normal frames of reference did visit and it, and it seemed like a very kind of idyllic monastic environment and people like myself were very well-spoken and didn't seem like sycophants and, and, and so on. And that's part of the, con the confusion when you're untying it all. Right. And also being able to get support around it, because if it doesn't look a certain way, that's obvious, um, then it becomes this challenge in, I guess, trying to convince people of something that they might not have noticed or they might not assume. Um, and that's why it seems so important to talk to other people who have left the same group or people who have left even similar groups because they have that same understanding similar to what you're saying about being in a relationship where on the surface, you know, you went out, you, you went out with another couple and they thought everything was fine because they don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it's very isolating. Totally. Yeah. And you kind of don't know who, who you can tell your story to also and who will believe you or not. Yeah, and my my personal course that I charted was a bit odd in that I ended up being very public very early on and kind of making a decision. I got I got educated. I, I mean, like I got education about cultic dynamics really early in validation and, and all that uh, kind of positive feedback to give me the the strength to speak out quite quickly. And I think in hindsight while it's had a lot of difficult repercussions that I don't regret, it's allowed me, you know, my life was kind of integrated really quickly. There, there wasn't a lot of people leave and spend years trying to figure out how to own it, not having a name for even what it was. And for me, it all happened like really quick. And I was able to decide like uh, to, I just kept my social media account, for example, like my, my Facebook still is full of monk pictures in the past and so on. And I was just like, preserve some continuity because I lost everyone if, for all intents and purposes or almost everyone. And, and, um, but yeah, to be able to kind of keep those identities linked from the get go, I think as I've been fortunate. And so destigmatizing things is important to me. Yes, very important to you. And, and yeah, I think when people kind of hit the ground running <laughs> right after they get out of any kind of experience, they sometimes haven't been able to heal yet and um, also learn how to take care of themselves or that it's important to take care of themselves so that there, there can be a lot of moving from being self-sacrificial to a group to then being kind of self-sacrificial to the anti-movement. And finding a place in between is, is uh, always so important. And it sounds like you're, you're finding your, your balance. I'm a work in progress for sure. <laughs> I, I, I could probably sacrifice less of myself on the whole. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate to have those cautions all along as well. And I feel like really that's helped me make informed decisions even earlier on in that leaving, um, which speaks to the value of destigmatization because then you, you come in contact with people who share and understand your experience and that gives so much support. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's invaluable. So, so okay. So moving on, or was there more you wanted to say about your studies, or were you wanting to move on to some of the other things we talked about? Um, yeah. I mean, the I think the other the next thing we had discussed talking about was kind of connected to my studies and what we were just discussing, which um, is this psychological framework that uh, I got really into through my studies, the power threat meaning framework. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in, in the course for one of our assignments, we, we were asked to incorporate this framework, which was published by the British Psychological Society in 2018, written over several years by a team of psychologists, I think a psychiatrist or two, a couple activists are also involved. And fundamentally what it is uh, was coming from the recognition that there are major shortcomings in the existing diagnostic models. And even the people, some of the people who, who wrote them uh, are have been saying as much for years now, uh, conceptual shortcomings in, in the DSM and things like that and practical shortcomings. And the recognition that from that, as a result, the, the mental health world also ends up inflicting harm. Uh, I mean, for other reasons as well, of course, but, but that's one of them. Uh, as, as a system of power itself that carries so much authority uh, and potential to help to, to influence how people define themselves. So it's this attempt to conceive of psychological distress without a diagnostic model, like kind of starting over from scratch, so to speak, uh, and see what that looks like. And they acknowledge that it's provisional and, and so on. But I think it's it's really powerful and it and it builds on kind of trauma-informed thinking. So instead of symptoms, they speak about threat responses, uh, which are like coping mechanisms that have now become maladaptive. There's there's a fundamental assumption that whatever your distress, there is a contextual basis for it that, that makes sense. Whether it can be fully understood or not is, is secondary, but the assumption is not you're a person with a unique kind of malfunctioning that's then causing you distress. The assumption is you're a person, life experiences have led you to think and behave in X, Y, and Z ways, which now are problematic for for certain reasons. And uh, as the title suggests, power threat, meaning it, it really looks at the, the influences and the movements of power in someone's life, which is very applicable in a, in a cultic setting, of course. And then it talks about meaning-based threats. And, and one, of, one of the components of power they outline is called ideological power. And, and I think that is, is core to, to our field, if you will. Um, and it's this notion that it's like the power to define how people think, how people make meaning of their own life and so on. And so uh, in cultic situations, that ideological power is so weaponized and abused that I, I like done a presentation talking about how it then undermines all the other potential forms of power that can be positive because they say all these different types of power can work positively or negatively. And, and my kind of point is ideological power because it's our sense making. It's uh, if that's co-opted, everything else can be, can be undermined legal power, financial power, bodily power, uh, so on. They, they outline, I think, nine aspects, which is not exhaustive. But so through working with this model, I was just really quite taken with it because it's also designed to be uh, cross-cultural. And when we're working with people coming from insular communities, it's like these micro-cultures where you can't assume that people share the same ideals about personal autonomy as uh, as a goal or, or any number of things. And so having this system that's adaptable and non-stigmatizing and designed to be uh, accessible, everything's published for free. They say that that was to address what they call epistemic injustice, which is basically like, again, with the systems of power, it, 
who even gets to have the knowledge to make scientific sense of psychological distress is, is limited. And so they, they wanted this to be an endeavor that kind of embodies its own philosophy. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so I don't know. In, 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 there's, there's so much more that could be said about it, of course, but the basic premise is um, really, really promising, I think. Yeah. And so I want to go back to something that you were talking about, where you said um, something about threat responses that have become maladaptive. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that I see a lot uh, that I've dealt with even just today and the clients that I've met with. And I'm wondering either for you, uh, if you want to reveal, I don't know if you want to reveal (laughs) how that played out in your life, or just give examples from what you've seen around you. Yeah, uh, I plead the fifth. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I that was kind of me trying to encapsulate a whole chunk of their their kind of framework and thinking in just a few words. But yeah, so the one of the recognitions in the framework is that especially in ongoing trauma, the the thoughts and behaviors one has to adopt to cope are, are extensive and permeate all sorts of different aspects of their life potentially, and and that's kind of why we. We talk about complex PTSD, I think, is because it becomes um, so intertwined with so many things. It's not always just like an overt, obvious, defined behavior. And and so for myself, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's ongoing. Um, I, I think that some some coping mechanisms and ways of thinking that, you know, like, We'll take hypervigilance, for example. Um, there's there's things to be kept in some of them too. I guess is what I'm saying. Like uh, a, a a greater awareness of people's body language in moder- in in proper moderation and not ending up kind of arising in settings where one shouldn't be suspicious. That's valuable, and 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 so I think it's it's a bit of a process of sorting the good from the bad and deciding what's good and what's bad for you and and that kind of um, taking the helm of your own self-image and recovery is also part of the thinking with power threat meaning is is like have people retaining power in their recovery process as well right and so i think also knowing that we are capable of responding to threats or things that were threats in the past and that we then have this cumulative knowledge um but it can be overdone or go awry uh the positive is that we have that that we have been able to hold on to the fact that something happened that was wrong or dangerous bad disturbing um and that our body is letting us know that we were impacted by it and so then you hope that you avoid those kinds of situations um but then you know, it's like if all you have is a hammer, everything seems like a nail. Anyone who may, maybe raises their voice is going to go take it to the next level because that's what happened to you in the past. So you might run from a lot of stressful situations with unnecessarily, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I do, I do see that a lot. And I think we all in this world do that to a certain degree when we've had something that has left that kind of impact on us where we were scared or upset. I agree. And like the the clarity that comes from being able to trace out some of those connections, like, oh, this is the way it is now because X, Y, Z, like that clarity in and of itself is so, so healing, I think. And, and that's why I, I really like kind of notions of like, narrative using narrative therapy and so on which is also something actually in the power threat meaning they work towards kind of building a holistic uh formulation of of your experience the influences this how what sense one makes of it and and how they react to it and and so on just recognizing just having the name for it ends up beginning to alleviate and i think that's kind of true more broadly for Mm -hmm. these things right Absolutely right. Okay. Okay. So then that might lead us into another subject that you wanted to cover. Yeah. The, the, the other kind of thing that's just been on my mind passionately, um, also in the context of my studies and the research that I'm 
trying to design is is betrayal and and uh, betrayal trauma as developed by this woman Jennifer Freyd in Oregon um, and her subsequent work with betrayal blindness and more recently institutional betrayal and so on all things that just on face value are very relevant to, to our studies and she talks a lot about the value of traumatic disclosure and things like we were just kind of speaking about like the kind of making sense of of what happened but the the basic betrayal trauma literature kind of uh has studied and gets at the fact that the long-term effects of abuse perpetrate like the same abuse perpetrated by someone close or in a caretaking role versus a stranger um high betrayal trauma, as she calls it, has typically has, has much stronger effects and longer lasting effects and, and so on. And so I kind of latched onto that. I thought that was very interesting because so much of the, the cultic experience involves daily betrayals of these unrealistic ideals um, that leaders and other members and yourself just can't live up to fundamentally. But then the leaving process is a, is a, is a giant betrayal or, or the recognition of, of a whole lifestyle that was characterized by betrayal. Meanwhile, the people you leave behind feel that you've betrayed them and, and so on. So I just kind of wanted to delve into the concepts. And one of the most valuable things, speaking about destigmatizing, um, has really been the work on be, uh, betrayal blindness to me in this book, Blind to Betrayal from 2013 and in my view it's the best thing I've encountered that explains that perennial question of like why did why didn't that person leave you know like I I was driving regularly into town running errands I could have never come back uh why didn't I do that or in a domestic violence setting and so on so betrayal blindness uh explains with research and and well-referenced and thought-through connections, um, basically the overwhelming impetus to not acknowledge betrayals when we're in an environment where to do the, the, the stakes of knowing are too high, as she says. Like, to acknowledge the betrayal is to make it less tolerable, and then we either need to confront it or, or escape. But if you're in a setting where confrontation is only likely to threaten you more or escape isn't viable, like children, then not ever even fully registering the betrayals is the easiest way of, of staying in a situation that you have no escape from or no perceived escape from. Just like with a child, then in a setting where for, for me, you know, my eternal spiritual health hanged in the balance. We didn't believe in eternal hell, but uh, we believed in potentially unending reincarnation, whereas the goal was to transcend that and get to heaven. So for me to, to walk away is to uh, put so much at jeopardy, and, and therefore it becomes easier, since I have to stay in the situation, so to speak, to just not even realize how much I'm being violated, how much the group ideals are not actually being carried out and, and so on. And, and I mean, she has a whole book kind of devoted to this phenomenon, but I think it's really powerful and accurate and not like the only person who said it, but the way she put it together really spoke to me. Right. So it's so powerful, just even the word betrayal, because right, it's, it, it is beyond um being hurt or um being neglected in some way um and um or trusting the wrong people there is this sort of gut reaction that people have to that term and so it is very powerful and the feeling is very powerful and um and for some people, I guess their reaction to it is going to be a lot of anger. For others, it will be sadness or just going inward. And, and I think one of the things that happens is then not knowing whom to trust and not knowing if you can trust yourself to assess if you're trusting the right people. Exactly. And, and 
you know, you're probably familiar a little bit, at least with the, this book, The Guru Papers, that was written in the 80s about yeah. authoritarianism. That kind of was the keystone, the last piece I needed to really get out of my group. But one of their chapters is specifically for ex-members or people who have experienced this kind of thing, and it's called Healing Crippled Self-Trust. And, and, and it talks about that because implied in the fact that the person I gave my eternal <laughs> servitude to uh, betrayed me is obviously so did my my judgment. Um, at least that's how it feels in reality. Our options were constricted and we were misinformed and, and preyed upon. But yeah. Right, right. Or criticized for doubting. So yeah. You had to put that out of your mind. Yeah, I, I but I, I agree with you. Just like betrayal is the, the the word has visceral weight, and and rightfully so. It's mm-hmm. it's it's like that up is down. You know, betrayal is like the when you correct a gaslighting. It's like mm-hmm. it's like returning the world back <laughs> on the right on its right side, and that's jarring, even though it's moving from from like moving towards reality and, and, and truth. Right. And I think also that I've come across this, that, um, yeah, I think it's true in my own life and also in the life of the clients that I have, uh, people who have left certain kinds of relationships or certain kinds of groups, that there is this wish to a certain degree that the person who has done this to you is not doing it on purpose. Right. Um, that they might have some disorder, <laughs> that it's coming from some other place. Uh, like if I've ever been betrayed or mistreated, I, I would want to think that this is coming from someone who isn't aware that that was going to be the end result of their behavior. Um, and, you know, because when you hear that it was calculated it changes it it it, um, magnifies it I think you know a hundred times yeah I and and that ties into the classic question that so many ex-cult members get which was like do you think he the the leader was a a con man or did he really believe you know this is a very kind of common thing and I always say there's there's a middle ground there which is that he truly believed in the theory and the philosophy and God as a pubescent blue boy who herds cows. Like, I, I think he truly believed all of that and therefore felt that the ends justifies the means, but he wasn't oblivious to the use of manipulation or the fact that that harmed people and, and left a string of, of damage in its wake. So it's like, he was a true believer, but not in a way that exonerates him from the damage uh, or or makes it like he was oblivious. You can't run people's lives for years and there not be some awareness of the fact that sometimes they don't like it <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And so I know we just have a few minutes left, and which is a shame because we could, we could talk about a lot of things. But I just wanted to um, ask you if there was something else that you wanted to talk about or uh, a story that you wanted to be able to tell so that people have kind of a, a sense of what you're talking about uh, kind of in real time and how this works and how this affects people in the world as they're moving through the world. I hadn't planned. I guess I was more succinct than I usually am. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I will leave off with something that I heard on a podcast I listened to yesterday, which was uh, uh, Terry Gross with two women, one of whom had authored this book, No Visible Bruises, recently about uh, domestic violence and, and delving into the psychological aspect of it and how hidden it can be and so on. And so at the end of that podcast, they asked the kind of common question of the scenarios, like if, if there's anyone listening who thinks this might be applicable to them or this might be their situation, like 
what would you say to them? And I've been asked that in other podcasts, but their answer I thought was so wonderful. If you're speaking about people still in oppressive environments, but starting to consider changing that, her answer was, was tell your story, you know, like find ways, not like, not like go on TV tomorrow, but find ways to start speaking to someone about it. And when you hear yourself expressing, this is what I, my life is like, this is how I feel. This is, you know, um, what's going on with me that starts to uh, sort some of the fog that is so important to manipulation and control. Like the, the, keeping that confusion in place is, is a lot of how the abusers work. And so this idea, like, find somewhere, and she said, you know, it may not be a close friend because that might be too dangerous or the implications in your social life with the abuser. So I'm, but I really uh, kind of loved, I thought that was really great final advice is, is, like, get in touch with your own experience. And sometimes that means saying it because it's been so camped down internally. Right, and I think also that you've been potentially made to not trust your uh, interpretation of it and um, or to blame yourself or whatever else. I think it reminds me of uh, people saying, just sitting in my office or friends I'll get together with, you know, where they will tell their story and they'll say, wow, as I'm saying this out loud, I can, I can hear what I'm saying. And I can hear a little more clearly about why it is that it affected me this way. And also some, for some people, they journal, and yeah. um, which is really good. And to try to get as detailed as possible, not only to get the story out, but I think to have a sense of how long it's been going on or the patterns. Totally. Um, right. And so, you know, something happens and you're reacted to in a particular way and then you feel a certain way and then you know the cycle and how it continues over and over again um so i i'm really glad that you're able to tell your story and you're also learning so much about how it all happens and how people react to it and what it does to us to be betrayed um and i think that that is something that's going to make you know, your work, if you choose to take on that work, you know, your work with people um, richer because you're going to understand it on on so many different levels. Um, so I really enjoy talking with you today. I, I love learning about what you're learning um, and also just hearing your enthusiasm about it because it, it, you know, I think that really underscores that this is something that's not only of interest to you, but that it really speaks to your heart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that answers the question you asked about real examples. It's like, you know, I can still picture people I love who are, are whose lives are being handicapped by, by these issues. So that's, that's motivating, absolutely. And uh, yeah. really thankful to get to come on your podcast, which is, has, uh, become really dynamic and, and, and cool since we tried to first record one <laughs> like in, in the first couple episodes right yeah um, yeah really good to talk to you and I'm so glad it worked out and hope to talk to you again thank you so much yeah it's been a pleasure good and good luck to you hope to see you soon yeah thanks okay it's always interesting to speak with Nitai. I've had a chance to hang out with them at conferences and actually at our friend's home in Philadelphia and work with him on the development now of a project to help those newly out of systems of control. He is smart and kind and devoted to helping people learn from his experience, and he also has taken the next steps to be able to learn about how this all happens and what the after effects can be, and I'm glad we had a chance to touch on some of those things that he's been studying that he wanted to share with you today. It's important to know the after effects of trauma, and there are a lot of studies about what trauma does to people, and not only are there studies about trauma and the brain, but also trauma and relationships and something called trauma bonding. 
But we have a greater understanding now about the impact it has also on mental health and physical health. There are many people who suffer in silence and suffer alone who go back into the world after having been traumatized and they don't get the support and the help they need. And this has an impact on them that makes them seem kind of out of control at times in their lives and makes them hide from society and situations that might overwhelm their system. And it makes it hard for them to be able to sustain joy and sustain connections with people. And they just might not be sure why that is. People who go underdiagnosed or undiagnosed are usually people raised in environments where it's common for people to be regularly traumatized so that it becomes the norm. And you think that's just how childhood is. Or you were raised in households where there was abuse or a lack of compassion about your pain, and it was considered a weakness if you seemed unable to just forget about it. When I talk about trauma, I'm also including overwhelming stress. So for those of you listening who feel you weren't traumatized per se or are not sure, but have experienced overwhelming stress, this message is for you too. Trauma affects people in different ways because there is an interplay between the traumatic event or overwhelmingly stressful event or events and your own wiring, how you can handle stress and how you can't to varying degrees. And also at what age the event or events occurred and how fairly consistent or recurrent they were. And when it's recurrent, people can feel like they've just constantly been hit while they were already down. So they don't bother really feeling hopeful again about their future and being ready to fully stand back up and feel confident and feel trusting and safe in the world because There's this feeling of inevitability that something's going to be taken away from them again. Something's going to feel overwhelming again. Something's going to traumatize them again. So they don't want to make themselves vulnerable and get too comfortable. And that's a sad situation. It happens to a lot of people, unfortunately, and sometimes they don't go for help because they're too fearful about being potentially pushed outside their comfort zone by talking about it, or because they're sometimes even worried about talking about what happened to them because they feel like it's going to re-traumatize them. So that's why it's important to go to talk to someone who's used to talking to people who have been through these experiences so they know how to handle it and how to help you work through it in a measured and in a safe way that's in line with kind of helping you keep your equilibrium while you're addressing these moments that left you overwhelmed. As I mentioned earlier, There is something called trauma bonding, which is something that's pretty new to the field, and I'm glad that it's being talked about. And one way to understand it is that you become connected to the person who is abusing you or traumatizing you or stressing you out in a way that people outside the relationship might not understand necessarily. But usually it goes like this, that you're with someone who is abusive, let's say, who is selfish or narcissistic. And they need to take this power away from you and make you feel small and make you feel afraid of disappointing them and not getting things done perfectly. And they get very punitive towards you. But then they are intermittently kind and giving, funny, forgiving, emotionally generous and softer. It's like intermittent gratification and it draws you in into something that is called a trauma bond where you want that sweetness and that break from the mistreatment to continue as long as it can. So you learn that you can control it by shifting your behavior a bit and pleasing that person as best you can so the sweetness and the break lasts for a longer time. But that really, in the back of your mind, you know it's not going to last forever and that the abuse is probably going to come back, and then there'll be a break from it again And you'll know what you need to do in order to try to keep that good feeling going and continue getting that break that you need. But the cycle just continues. And then if the abuse comes back, you might feel you deserve it because you just had the recent experience of this person being kind to you. And if a kind person is angry with you, you can more easily feel like it's your fault. Children learn to appease someone who puts them under overwhelming stress or abuse because they have to. If that person or those people are their only caretakers and they don't have anywhere else to go or 
any other adults in their lives who they really know yet and can rely on, they are stuck. Adults can also get drawn into making the significant person in their lives happy, and this can become such a focus that they forget that they actually don't need to be doing this at all. And that's not their job, and they shouldn't be expending all their energy just to keep this person on an even keel who's not kind to them and ultimately and not healthy for them. And people who leave these situations realize how much effort they put into appeasing a person who they just should have left. But sometimes people don't feel that they have options because someone has taken over their life and has taken away their feelings of confidence in themselves, taken away their control of their finances, sometimes threatened to take away their children if they leave, threatened to destroy their reputations with their family or their employer if they leave. So there are a lot of reasons people stay, and it's really important for them to not be judged for whatever the reason is that makes them feel stuck at the time. People with post-traumatic stress disorder, now also called post-traumatic stress syndrome, are people who are stuck in what they call danger mode. Their brain releases stress hormones pretty consistently until they're able to get help for being kind of on high alert all the time, expecting that something will go wrong, expecting that they will need to protect themselves and that they're in imminent danger. And this is exhausting for the brain and exhausting for the body. There are a lot of people who describe having chest pains and getting sick more often, having digestive issues and other physical symptoms because they are stuck in this danger mode and the chemicals are coursing through their system even though they're not in danger. I can sometimes tell when I have people in my office who have been through something by the way they respond to the noises outside my office during the session. And if they hear a sound that reminds them of something they experienced that was outside the norm of a typical daily kind of experience for them and left them feeling traumatized or afraid. I work right next door to a hospital and every once in a while you hear an ambulance and every once in a while, because I'm off a busy street, you may hear screeching brakes because someone is about to miss a turn or is almost going to hit a car. And I tune out all of these things because I'm used to them. But the last time I had a couple in my office and there was that horrible sound outside of screeching brakes that you're expecting to be followed by some sound of crashing metal. But that sound of crashing metal didn't happen, fortunately. So the crisis was averted. But one of the people in the couple just kept talking to me like nothing happened. While the other one quickly jumped up, looked out the window, broke out into a sweat, put her hand on her chest because she could feel her heart beating. And this was to the very same stimuli. Very same incident, very same sound as her partner who didn't respond at all. Turns out she had been in a car accident when she was young and those sounds have stayed with her in her mind and not only in her mind, in her body. You could see how she physically responded even though she was not in danger and nowhere close to where this was occurring down the street. When we think about trauma and the after effects of overwhelming stress, we think about how it affects relationships. And I've seen this with some of my own friends, and I've seen this with some of my clients. It can make people easily edgy and impatient, need to control their environment, be irritated by things that happen that are unpredictable or sensorily overwhelming. There's a doctor named Stephen Porges who developed the polyvagal theory and talks also about the polyvagal theory and relationships. And he says that trauma compromises our ability to engage with others by replacing patterns of connection with patterns of protection. So, unfortunately, that means that while someone works hard to remain safe in their life, they lose the ability or have it hampered to be able to stay connected and they miss out on chances for loving connection and become avoidant and they shut down. And that can frustrate the people who love them when they see them moving away emotionally and physically when they really don't have to. And you can sometimes see it in their eyes, the people who move away, that they wish they could stay connected, but they just don't know yet how to make themselves feel safe enough to do so. 
So for all of you out there who are experiencing this, I hope you get the support and the help that you need so that your trauma doesn't cause you to feel unnecessarily isolated while you protect yourself from things that are probably not going to happen to you again. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.